Good morning, everyone. We have a few announcements today. Uh, offering envelopes in the box. Uh, Andrea is our contact number. Dale, we still have a lot of days and praise and acts of facts out there, but we have a large. We have a few large box announcements for today. Now please, check number. Okay. Yeah, we still have please, a lot of data. Please avail yourselves to that. Um, please. Offering envelopes have still not arrived. Remember, we do have some of last year's and the okay. year before and five years before that in the office that okay. we can write okay. numbers on them. And then you just and please etch out check here. Number. Still not arrived. Okay. One of the envelopes okay. there and put your own number on that. In the number. meantime, we, we do have, we have some of last year's and the year before Pastor um, has decided offering envelopes have still not arrived. Remember, we do have some of last year's today, four and five years of darkness. Please, still not arrived today. Put your own number on Please, remember, last year's and the year before. Put your own number on Pastor has decided offering envelopes have still not arrived. We do have some of last year's today, four and five years of darkness.
right. He lost the blessing. And then he blamed Jacob for all of that, not his own behavior. He also learned how much his parents hated the fact that he had married pagan women and wanted Jacob to go to the land of Rebekah's brother where he could wed people of his own family and faith. So to spite this decision of Isaac and Rebekah, Esau went out and married daughters of Ishmael. Daughters of Ishmael would be those of Arab descent. You know, the Arabs claim Abraham as their father as well. But what a difference there is between the Arabs and the Israelites in terms of their spiritual philosophy. Well, in all of this, Esau proved that he was unworthy of making spiritual decisions. He was self-centered, full of hate. Murder was on his mind. And our text today shows Jacob on the run. He's listened to his parents, please, to relocate in Padam Aram, the homestead of Rebekah's brother, Laban. The very place where Isaac's servant, Eliezer, had secured Rebekah as a bride for him. So it's kind of a repeat. They're going <clears throat> about the process one more time. And today we want to look at Jacob's flight and his dreams. As we come, let's ask for the Lord to enable. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of these historical accounts. And from the historical accounts, we glean spiritual lessons that we should take to heart because God doesn't change. And the way you operate with men is always on the basis of righteousness. And these things that the patriarchs experienced, they went through because of what you ordained for them. In all these things, there's a lesson to be taught. They needed to learn what it was like to be a follower of the God of creation, not some wooden, stone, or metallic idol from which all the nations followed, but they have come to follow the living God but they just didn't know necessarily how all of that worked out. But they learned. God was not a God of wood. He was not a God of gold or silver or anything else. He was the living God and creator of the universe. We see today that we have a population, even in our own country, whose concept of God is basically idolatry because they form God in their own image. They say things like, well, my God would never, and then they state whatever it is. Well, their God doesn't exist. The only God that exists is the one that has declared himself as such and has the credentials to prove it, and that is the holy God of our scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought him into our lives by the power of Jesus in whose name we th give thanks. Amen.
Our text is Genesis 28. Today we're looking at Jacob's flight to get away from his brother Esau and his dream. Verse 10, he says, it says that Jacob set out from Beersheba. He had been counseled by his father, do not marry a Canaanite woman, verse 1. Go at once to Padamaran, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take away for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Go back home to find a wife. Don't you know we're in a pagan country? There are no believers here in Jehovah. This is not a place for you to be settling down with a woman that's going to be your bride and the mother of your children. They know nothing of our faith. They believe nothing of our faith. Their concept of God is idolatry. Go home. Go where you can find a woman of like spiritual philosophy. The word Beersheba means well of the oath. Well of the oath. And it signifies the pact Abraham had entered into to stop the infighting between himself and the servants of King Abimelech over water rights. You remember that. The Philistines kept stopping up the wells with dirt every time Abraham's servants dug a well. And it was an attempt to force him to settle somewhere else. I mean, if you can't have water for your livestock and your family and so forth, yeah, you might be have to move on geographically. But, you see, God promised the land to Abraham and to his descendants. Beersheba was located in southern Palestine, south of what would become Jerusalem, and a long, long way from Badam Aran, about 700 miles away from that area, which was Jacob's ultimate objective. Now, 700 miles. Such a journey meant weeks of travel at great expense in terms not only of money but also of time and energy. It was indicative of Jacob's willingness to, do, to avoid a confrontation with Esau while obeying his father and mother's wise counsel. How else was he to find a God-fearing woman to marry? Palestine was inhabited by Philistines, Ishmaelites, Canaanites, and every other ite of pagan practice. Jacob had to go back to his roots, to the spiritual habitat of his family. And he was willing to do so. On the way, he had a dream. Verse 10 indicates that Jacob had traveled a day's journey because it mentions he reached a certain place where he stopped for the night because the sun had set. If we look ahead a little bit, we know that this place called Luz, L-U-Z, verse 19, Jacob renamed Bethel, meaning God's house. Now we know where Bethel is located in ancient Palestine and where Bathsheba was located. 
The distance Jacob traveled in one day was about 55 miles, as the crow flies. But we know that traveling, travelers could not always move on a straight line, you know that, because of rivers and mountains and so on and so forth. So what would take us an hour in an automobile, oh, 55 miles, we can do that in an hour. It took Jacob all day. As the sun set, Jacob looked at, a, at the, where he was, and he took a stone for his pillow, and he dropped off to sleep. And he fell into a deep sleep, and he dreamed about a staircase, King James Version says a ladder, with its footing on earth, but whose top reached into heaven. And on the stairs, the angels of God were cascading up and down. So this was a heavenly vision in which God often revealed his will to the person dreaming the dream. Remember, if we move to the New Testament just for a minute, Joseph repeatedly was instructed by God through dreams concerning Mary and the baby Jesus. And that was to keep him safe from Herod's treachery. Move here. Go down to Egypt. Stay there a while. Herod dies. Now he can come back home. And so on and so on. In our text, the Lord himself, Jehovah, the great I Am, stood at the top of the staircase and revealed himself as the Lord, the God of your father Abraham. That would be his grandfather. The God of Isaac, that would be his father. In the Hebrew language, there's no word for grandfather or grandmother. Just father. So you have to do the math yourself and plot the history to discover which father is meant. What God revealed to Jacob was essentially the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. Now this is Jacob, so this is generation or so later what did God promise in the Abrahamic covenant well there are four promises number one the land of Palestine would become his territory number two his descendants would increase to an innumerable host which would spread out to the east and the west the north and the south verse 14 and once again Number three, concerning the coming Messiah, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Very important. And promise number four, I will be with you and watch over you wherever you go. Next morning when Jacob awoke, a sobering reality began to set in. He had been confronted by none other than the Lord of hosts. Verse 17, and he says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, which is what the word Bethel means, the gate of heaven. That is a portal into the presence of God Himself, which few men, if any, have ever experienced. If you know your Bible, that's very true. So, to commemorate the rarity and the sacredness of this event 
Jacob anointed his stone pillow with oil and he changed the name of the city from Luz to Bethel, house of God. But he did something else. He took a vow to God and it's recorded in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey that I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. In other words, the necessities of life. So that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth, a tithe. Genesis 28, verse 20 and following. Now we listen to these words of Jacob and we think, well now, (laughs) it appears that Jacob is becoming less the schemer than he was when tricking Esau out of his birthright and out of his blessing. He's showing a real sensitivity towards God. He seems to be taking his role as a spiritual leader more seriously Well, if you think this, you are mistaken. (laughs) Jacob gives no evidence of conversion whatsoever. Here, at least. As God confronts Jacob in his dream, he identifies himself, verse 13. I am the Lord. The word here is Jehovah. L-O-R-D, all capital letters. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. But he doesn't say I'm your God. Not at this juncture. Mm -mm. He'll claim to be Jacob's God later. But Jacob has to get saved. Jacob has to get his heart right. Before God's going to admit that. When Jacob awakes from his dream. Verse 17. It says he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? Brethren, this is a slavish fear. This is a fear of God born out of terror. It's not the fear of the Lord born out of love for God and the desire to obey him. When we talk about Christians fearing the Lord, we mean that we have a reverence and an awe for God. And it's a happy occasion. It's not terror. Oh, he's going to get me. Oh, he's going to send me to hell. Believers don't think that way. Because we know that Christ's blood, his sacrifice has paid our debt with regard to sin. But we do respect God. We don't curse his name like everybody in the world continues to do in our day. We don't minimize who he is. We don't rob him of his tithes and offerings. Jacob feared God in terror. And all this is confirmed by Jacob's vow. God had promised him, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying, verse 13. And again, verse 15, I am with you. 
I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Yet what is Jacob's response? He takes a vow, the content of which is this. If God will be with me and watch over me, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return, then the Lord will be my God. And from my stone pillow I will build you a house. And on top of all this, I, I will pledge 10% of, of my income. I will give back to you. There's no faith here. There's no faith here in Jacob. God had promised all these things as his gifts to Jacob... But Jacob, in his vow, is working a business deal. With the principles being, God as the banker, the loan officer, Jacob the borrower, pledging loyalty to God, and 10% interest on the loan payback. I remember hearing Colonel Sanders, the father, uh, inventor of Kentucky Fried Chicken, he was a guest speaker at our home church in Pennsylvania one time. And everybody in the Christian community was, ooh, ah, oh, Carl Sanders, a Christian that owns a business and loves the Lord and so forth. And we were suckered in on that too. Here's what Colonel said. Colonel Sanders said at our church meeting. I've always thought it good for business to give God his cut. He was talking about the tithe. Let me read it again. I've always thought it good for business to give God his cut. That's Jacob. I'll work out this deal. Nah, pay him his tithe. But only if you bless me. Uh, only if you bring me back to this place. Only if I get this land. And notice too that Jacob omits the one provision of God's promise that is not monetary in value. Verse 14, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notably, this is the promised Messiah or spiritual savior of sinners. But Jacob's business deal does not mention any of that. He's not interested in spiritual blessing. But if God will give him food and clothing and safety to be preserved from the Philistines and any of the other foreign nationals that might be there. Jacob's willing to build a house for God. Oh, and give him 10% of all the material prosperity that God will shower upon him. If we hope to see any true faith or thanksgiving in Jacob, 
for God's salvation of his miserable, self-centered, wheeling-dealing, conniving self, we'll have to wait for many years to come in Jacob's life. Jacob will have to come to an end of himself. He will have to renounce his self-sufficiency and see that God does not need him to build God a temple, but he needs God to make Jacob's heart a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jacob isn't ready for that yet. But I can tell you, because I read ahead, (laughs) it's coming. Just hang in there. It's coming. Well, what do we learn from Jacob's dream and vow? Well, I think one of the things we learn is that the Jews are the conduit through whom humanity is saved, yet the world hates and seeks to destroy them. This is a strange thing. God's original promise to Abraham, the substance of which is reiterated in our text, was this. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, verse 3. Now, we don't have to guess what was meant by this promise. Paul, writing under inspiration, tells us in the New Testament, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So, Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verses 8 and following. If you think that anti-Semitism ended with Nazi Germany, you need to think again. The Ayatollahs of Iran have vowed repeatedly, this is their words, to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Or, and again their words, to push them into the sea. Throughout Europe and the Americas, people have nothing but contempt for Jews and do not hesitate to deride them, to belittle them, to commit slander and crimes against them where they can get away with it. Why? Well, apart from being sinners like all humanity, what is their great crime? What is their wicked sin? Now, they are sinners. We know that. 
They are sinners in need of the Savior, as with all of us Gentiles. But how is it that the world has lost sight of the truth that Jesus, get this now, the Son of God and Savior of the world, was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Nobody wants to think about that. Such anti-Semitism, rhetoric, and hatred fuels the persecution of God's people up to the present day. Much of it's envy, covetousness. Many of the Jews are experts in business. They know how to turn a buck into megabucks. While the less business savvy look on with covetousness. Let me tell you, if you know Jesus as Savior, you possess the crown jewel of the promise God made to Abraham. Wow. This should lead us to be thankful. God has done for you what he has yet to do for Israel. Think of that. The avowed children of God, the Israelites. But he saved us Gentiles, first and foremost. And there is yet a great radical difference between the Jews and their love for God and ours. their relationship to Jesus as Savior and ours. How blessed we are. Paul put it this way, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Godlessness away from Jacob. Good, he needs it turned away. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. As far as the gospel is concerned, They are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Romans 11, 25 and following. 
say, what's Paul's point? Well, it's this. No one gets into heaven because of birth or privilege or race or religion, but solely because of God's mercy. The Jews, like us, have to learn this. They do. But they will learn this. They must cease their disobedience to the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, and then receive God's gracious forgiveness. And they will, according to the scripture, they will cease this rebellion against Christ. Secondly, God is not hampered in his care of us by geography, by our sin, by our wrong thinking. No, he brings his people home. This was promised to Jacob and required no business contract to secure. What God requires of us is faith in his word, not some reciprocal agreement in which we say to God, well, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. No, none of that. I'll choose you as my God if you will bless me with the necessities of life and see me safe to heaven's shore. Those who try to bargain with God will often receive more than they bargain for. And that's not a good thing either. The fatal flaw of trying to bargain with God is the flaw of assuming that you are on a par with God and have something that God needs or wants which would favorably dispose him to bless you if you could provide God with whatever that something is, whatever it might be. Paul responds, saying he, that is God, is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath, oh, and uh, um, everything else. Everything else. Whoa. Acts 17, verse 25. Simply put, God needs none of us. We need Him. We need Him. Only a person ignorant of God would attempt to cut a deal with him, as Jacob did. And as so many people in our day do, they have what I call a Wall Street mentality. They're used to getting what they want by wheeling, dealing, not necessarily by cheating or dishonesty, I'm not saying that, but by paying their way in some kind of a reciprocal agreement and it makes people feel good about themselves if they can contribute to the outcome it's fundamentally a pride thing have you not run into people who say something like this well you know I don't like to be beholden to anyone or I want to earn my keep 
I intend to pay my way. I plan to feather my own nest. And a dozen other sayings which indicate that people have trouble with grace. They do. They have trouble with grace. They stumble over free. This past Christmas season, did you give a gift to someone who did not expect it? What was their response? Did they react, oh, this is so nice, Uh, but I didn't get you anything. What are they saying? They are feeling guilty that they did not think of giving you a gift or didn't have the means to do so. Well, Jesus comes along with the gospel of good news. And the good news is that he will take all of your sinful burdens upon himself. Whatever your wickedness, his blood sacrifice will atone for it all. However many sins you have committed, he will bury them in the depths of the sea He will put them as far as the east is from the west. Out of his thoughts and his judgment, if only you will trust him to do it and demonstrate your thankfulness by turning away from your sin. He'll do that. Do it all. What I'm saying is, God did not need Jacob's deal to bless him with the necessities of life. giving him safety on his journey, seeing to it that God's house would be built and that Jacob himself would make it back home. He's God. And he gives to all men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need you. You need him. And that's a pride thing. And that's why the world doesn't like the gospel of grace. Don't tell me that I can't do anything to earn heaven. I'm a good person. I give X number of dollars to the church. I help to build the new wing in the Sunday school building. So I said, people don't think that. No. I got a, I got a news flash for you. When our church built the Sunday School Edition onto this building, there were people from the community, not members of any church, not Christians at all, they came here to work on that building. And I talked to a number of them. And they said, well, we have the skill, and we thought it would be a good thing to do for the community, to put on a new wing of the, and to be able to be a part of it. Why was it going to be a good thing? Because it gave them an opportunity to do something which they thought had meritorious benefit before God. People think that way. I do for you. The day will come. You do for me. 
Let me tell you as strong as I can, God did not need Jacob's deal to bless him with the necessities of life. To give him safety on his journey, see to it that he would get the house of God built and Jacob would make it back home. God didn't need the deal. He's God. He gives all these things to men, life and breath and everything else. You need him. Thirdly, the prayers we voice to God should concern the essentials of life, not the opulence of the world. Here's a test on your prayer life. Near as I can figure out, Jacob left Beersheba with but the shirt on his back. Isaac was very wealthy, but his wealth, as with Abraham before him, and the other patriarchs, like Job, for example, their wealth was in livestock. I mean, if you're fleeing for your life, as Jacob was from Esau, who had promised to murder him, there's no time to ask your father, hey, dad, would you divvy up the inheritance and send me on your way? With several hundred or several thousand sheep and goats? I would appreciate that. No. The livestock would have slowed Jacob down. But there was an urgency for Jacob. Get out of town! We read in verse 1 that Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Christian or a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padamaran. Wait a minute. At once? Dad, you're commanding me to leave home? And the urgency is not that Jacob needed to find a woman to marry quickly. Years would pass. Years would pass before Jacob finally married. The urgency had to do with what Rebecca told him in chapter 27, verse 42 and following. Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. And when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, remember he tricked him out of the birthright, I'll send word for you to come back home. Oh, wow, sounds like a good plan. And so Rebecca uses the word, Flee to instruct Jacob. Isaac uses the expression, go at once to Padamaram. So the expression is of urgency by both parents. And that reveals their suspicion that Esau is dead set on killing Jacob as soon as possible to seek revenge for Jacob's trickery. You need to get out of town, and you need to get out of town now. Now, I've said all that to say this. Jacob left home in such haste and motivation for personal survival, there was no time to pack his favorite clothes. There was no time to get a basket lunch or to herd a portion of the livestock along with him because it was part of his inheritance he just had to hit the road as fast as his legs or his camel could carry him and his request of God reveals his basic 
material needs. Verse 20. If God will be with me and will watch over me on my journey that I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. What's his three prayer requests? Safety on the journey, food to eat, clothes to wear. That's pretty basic. There's no greed here. There's no covetousness here. Jacob could could not satisfy his hunger by eating gold and silver. No. Right now, what Jacob needed most was food and clothing. Paul addressed the same issue with Timothy, his Bible student, his fellow worker in the gospel. Paul wrote to him, If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into the temptation and trap and to many foolish and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6 verses 8 and following. Satan dangles the opulence of the world before our eyes with the hope that we will sell out our faith in God preferring wealth from the world over salvation. I remind you that Jesus was tempted in the same way by the devil. Let me read it for you. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4, verse 8 and following. Christ really has endured everything that you and I are going to endure in terms of temptation. But there's room in a person's heart for only one God, one master, Jesus put it this way, No one can serve two masters. Either he will (coughs) hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. In Jacob's case, it was not because he was immune to wanting wealth, but he was a pragmatist. What's that? Well, the wealth can wait. (laughs) But his greatest need was survival. I need clothing and I need food right now. In our case as believers, our prayers should contain more requests for spiritual graces. Why? Well, because we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. 1 Timothy 6 verse 7. You're not going to be able to transport your gold and silver to glory. So I don't have any gold and silver. Well, whatever it is that you have <clears throat> that you think is worth something. Real estate, your house, your car, whatever. It's all going to be it's all going to become ash. 
fire of destruction will come upon them. Finally, God never sanctioned his worship center to be at Bethel. But self-willed Israel made it a place of idolatry. He was Jacob was just thinking as a pagan man when he promised God, verse 22, the stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. I'm going to do this for you, God. Right here, we're going to build you a house. This reflects the good intentions of religious but lost men. They plan to do something of merit for God. I already alluded to that. Build a wing on the church. Yeah, they can do that. Give a percentage more in offering than the basic tenth. Yes, they can do that. Support a mission project. Something, anything, to allow them some part in the outcome. Bethel means house of God. What a wonderful name given to lose by Jacob. But its spiritual legacy wasn't wonderful at all. In fact, it was diabolical. It was not of God's spirit. We shall see that God did meet with Jacob on a personal basis several times at Bethel, but a worship center for God never materialized there. Instead, After Solomon's kingdom was divided, we are told, Jeroboam thought to himself, hmm, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, Oh, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one that was there. Jeroboam built shrines in the high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah. What festival was that? Passover. What a wicked guy. He offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel. Sacrificing to the calves that he had made. 1 Kings 12, verse 26 and following. Wow. Sadly, what Jacob considered the 
setting up of his own idea of worship center for God that is in much vogue in our day by disgruntled professing Christians who have all but abandoned the church. And I'm not kidding. There's a lot in America that are like that. The writer of Hebrews warns against it. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, verse 25. Or Paul instructed Timothy, Although I hope to come to you very soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 1 Timothy three fourteen and 15. It's to the church collectively that Christ gives spiritual gifts. It was he who gave some to be apostles, I'm reading scripture, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there with every wind of teaching by the crafting and cunning of wicked men and deceitful scheming, which they do. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following. I say it kindly. A Bible study in the home is not the church. Though it may be an outreach of the church. A prayer group is not the church, though God calls his church to pray. A mission project, a camp program, a men's retreat, a women's retreat are gatherings that can be profitable if they do not become a law unto themselves. The spiritual intentions of men like Jacob's plan to build a house for God at Bethel may be nothing more than an exercise of unbelieving people offering counterfeit religious exercises to make themselves feel spiritually alive and saved. The church is Christ's body alone and no substitute by man or religions can change that. It doesn't even come close. Discernment is critical in these last days Boy, you better believe it. You see, Jacob was still, he was still planning, planning, when he should have been waiting upon God. He was talking when he should have been listening. 
He was attempting to cut a deal with God when he should have acknowledged his own failure and ineptitude. Oh, promising God great endeavors. I'll build you a house. I'll give you a tenth of all my earnings. When he should have been crying out to God for mercy, for salvation. Is he saved here in this text? I don't think so. He's just wheeling dealing like he's used to doing. Going to get saved later. Praise God, he is going to get saved. But he's not saved here. He's just a religious man trying to cut a deal with God. Looking at God as just some normal businessman. He's got the money. I'll cut a deal with him and he'll bless me. If that's you this morning, let me tell you. There's only one that accomplished it responsible, <clears throat> an actual godly response from God, and that was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ is where his mercy is poured out to those who believe. Believing is not working your own way, it's not wheeling and dealing. It's trusting the one that God has appointed as Savior for the world. You can go around Jesus all you want, but if you do that, you're excusing yourself from the very person that God has ordained to save sinners. There's no one like Jesus. There's no sinner that can compare to the sinless Son of God who gave of his life for his people. Our Father, we pray that you will bless us with the truths of this text. We still see in Jacob, boy, he, he he's a wheeler dealer here. And it's pitiful that he thinks he can twist the arm of God and get favors from God if he just pushes the right buttons. But to our shame in our culture, there are many, many Jacobs. They live everywhere. They're among our relatives, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, ourselves. We think all we got to do is somehow cut a deal with God. Just tell us, God, what you want us to do. I'm sure we can do it. Just tell us. But there is no ability in us to meet the high standards of God Almighty. What's the high standards? Well, one is the wages of sin is death. Do we really want to pay that wage? Or do we want to trust the one whose payment secures for us a portal for God's grace? I pray that we'll begin to see the importance of Jesus and there is no other like him. God's perfect son what a sacrifice for his people.
Lord, we bless thee and thank you for the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. You didn't have to do it. Your son didn't have to die. Except the fact that you ordained it to be so. And it says in the scripture that he willingly laid down his life for us. No one took his life from him. But he laid it down of his own initiative, his own accord. That's great love. We don't know what that kind of love is. Not in a person like Christ who would be a stranger to us. But, oh, Lord, we're just so thankful that you thought of us as your family. Even before the beginning of the world, our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 528. 528 in the Brown Hymnal.
it's a beautiful little hymn. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Our Lord, we're just thankful and appreciative for what we just sang and just the knowledge of that. Why would you give yourself to all the torture that you endured? Why would you deprive yourself of the glories of heaven, the majesty of your position as the Son of God, to come into our world and be tortured to death for the likes of us? Scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You yourself, Jesus, said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord that I might take it up again. There's this partnership between the Father and the Son. For what? To save sinners like us. Not everybody's going to be saved, so it's selective. Why would you do that? We are told in the scripture it's because of your mercy and, uh, and your grace, neither of which is earned, but given solely from the heart of God. We can dig as deep as we want to dig in the scriptures and try to find the reason why God would love us and would sacrifice his son for us. And why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why me and not somebody else? We could do that till the cows come home and would not find the answer other than the fact that what God says in Romans himself, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's his answer. Well, why? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You're basically saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you don't need to understand all the intricacies of it. No, we don't. But we surely are thankful, Lord. And I hope that you will make us thankful. We are a select group that has been loved since the creation of the world. In fact, the author in Genesis says that our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before we even came to be. That's because God is in control of everything. And our birth was not an accident. I thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Help us to love the gospel and to love Jesus for what he's done for us. And if there's one lost here today, may they come to Christ. May they plead his mercy. May they ask, oh, Lord, save me, save me too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.